Amen. All right, so let's see if this continues to work. Let's look at some intro stuff. Hey, Frank, from the book of Isaiah, the author is Isaiah, or is it? Dun, dun, dun. It's one of the most hotly contended books as far as who wrote the book of Isaiah, right? It had always been kind of thought that it was Isaiah, but there's a couple things that people say maybe it wasn't Isaiah. Maybe it was two authors, or maybe even it was three authors, Deutero, Isaiah, or Trito, or Isaiah, for those who really, really want to know those things. Um, there are differences in tone. There are differences in style. There's one really crazy prophecy of Cyrus who is named in 4428. And if that happened hundreds of years before Cyrus, like, how could it be Isaiah, right? So, unless, of course, it was the Lord speaking through Isaiah who gave him the exact name of that person. Um, basically, um, traditionally, it's split into two parts. One through 39 is kind of the... the uh, prophecy of judgment, and then after that, it's the exile portion of the program, and there are different styles in that. Um, but there's good reasons to think that it is Isaiah. Number one is what happened in 1947 with the Dead Sea Scrolls, where they found a complete copy of Isaiah, uh, probably from about 3rd century BC. There's no suggestion within those scrolls of a really big gap, although some people claim they see one after uh, 33, some people claim they see one after 39. Not really sure. There's nothing in the Hebrew that says, you know, new author starts writing here and his name is whatever, so-and-so. Um, so that's one of the biggest things. It's the complete text. It's actually written on 17 sheepskin pages that are sewn together. And uh, Mel and I, when we were in Israel, had the honor of going to Qumran and seeing uh, the great Isaiah scroll as it is. It's probably a replica we found that out quickly, that these things you see in Israel, even in Israel, are not actually the things. They're like squirreled away in some museum somewhere protected by armed guards. But we did see either the Great Scroll or a very close replica of the Great Scroll. Um, one of the bigger reasons why we think that it's a single uh, author, Isaiah, is because Jesus thinks so. And when Jesus, we just saw that in Matthew a couple weeks ago where uh, Matthew says to quote or to fulfill what the prophet Isaiah said. And so just kind of, we'll never really know uh, truly, and truly doesn't really know if it matters, right? But for our purposes, we're going to stick as though it were one author uh, in two parts, 1 through 39 and then 40 through 46. I had wild fantasies of getting through the first part, and then I quickly realized that that was impossible. So... Revising my goal to get through the first 12 chapters tonight as an overview, and we'll see how that goes. But as far as Isaiah, he's the first of the major prophets. He is the son of a guy named Amoz, who we know next to nothing about, so that doesn't really help us very much. Some people think he was royalty, so Isaiah could be some part of a royal family. He was a resident of Jerusalem. As far as the date written, 8th century or so B.C., so that puts us like 740 to 700, and the reason we think that is Isaiah 6, where he talks about in the year that King Uzziah died, and we know from other records that it's probably about that time. So somewhere around there, it is written to the uh, leaders of Israel, and it is, of course, a prophecy, a, a prophetic genre. Lots of Im imagery, lots of symbolism. Uh, one author called it a collection of prophetic sayings and oracles. And if you've ever tried to read Isaiah from start to finish in kind of an overview like I have a few times this week, it's kind of frustrating because sometimes you just don't feel like it's going anywhere. It's just like, just like all these crazy sayings and things and he's skipping around. And so it is a collection of prophetic sayings as well sometimes. Uh, as far as a purpose, there's really two purposes. The first part, again, if we look at it from 1 to 39, pre-exile, it's a judgment and a warning that exile's coming. And then after that, it is exile and also the hope of a new, uh, new Jerusalem. So it's kind of the warning of what's coming, but also then there's the hope of what is coming after that. Another good quote I read said, Isaiah presents a sweeping theological vision spanning from creation to new creation. 
a movement achieved by God's redemptive work that he shares with his people. And one other guy said, it might be argued that without Isaiah, the New Testament could not have been written, which is quite a statement. But there is so much of Isaiah in the New Testament, not only in direct quotes, but also in themes of the grand big story of the Bible, right? God's creation, our fall into sin, redemption through a Messiah, and then the hope of new creation. So a lot of that is in there. Okay, with that being said, it's the moment you guys have been waiting for. <laughs> we have a... We, we have an eight-minute overview of the first part of Isaiah, chapters 1 through 39, by our friends at the Bible Project. And so I'm going to hopefully press play, and this is hopefully going to work. And let me get the mixer up here so we can have The book of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah sound. lived in Jerusalem in the latter half of Israel's kingdom period, and he spoke on God's behalf to the leaders of Jerusalem and Judah. He spoke, first of all, a message of God's judgment. He warned Israel's corrupt leaders that their rebellion against their covenant with God would come at a cost, that God was going to use the great empires of Assyria and after them Babylon to judge Jerusalem if they persisted in idolatry and oppression of the poor. But that announcement was combined with a message of hope. Isaiah believed deeply that God would one day fulfill all of his covenant promises, that he would send a king from David's line to establish God's kingdom, remember 2 Samuel 7, that he would lead Israel in obedience to all of the laws of the covenant made at Mount Sinai, remember Exodus chapter 19. And all of this was so that God's blessing and salvation would flow outward to all of the nations, like God promised to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And it's this hope that compelled Isaiah to speak out against the corruption and idolatry of Israel in his day. Now, the book has a pretty complex literary design, but there's one simple way to see how it all fits together. Chapters 1 through 39 contain three large sections that develop Isaiah's warning of judgment on Israel. And it all culminates in an event pointed to at the end of chapter 39, the fall of Jerusalem and the exile of the people to Babylon. But in chapters 1 to 39, there's also a message of hope that after the exile, God's covenant promises would all be fulfilled. And chapters 40 to 66 pick up that promise of hope and develops it further. In this video, we're just going to focus on chapters 1 to 39. The first main section focuses on Isaiah's vision of judgment and hope for Jerusalem, and it begins as Isaiah accuses the city's leaders of covenant rebellion, idolatry, injustice, and God says he's going to judge the city by sending the nations to conquer Israel. Isaiah says that this will be like a purifying fire that burns away all that's worthless in Israel in order to create a new Jerusalem that's populated by a remnant that has repented and turned back to God, and Isaiah says that that's when God's kingdom kingdom will come and all nations will come to the temple in Jerusalem and learn of God's justice, bringing about an age of universal peace and harmony. Now, it's this basic storyline of the old Jerusalem purifying judgment into the new Jerusalem. This is going to get repeated over and over throughout the book, getting filled in with increasing detail. So, at the center of this section is Isaiah's grand vision of God sitting on his throne in the temple. And he's surrounded by these heavenly creatures that are shouting that God is holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah suddenly realizes just how corrupt he and his people Israel are. And he's certain that he's going to be destroyed by God's holiness, but he's not. God's holiness, in the form of this burning coal, comes and burns him, but not to destroy. Rather, it purifies him from his sin. And as Isaiah ponders the strange experience, God commissions him with a very difficult task. He is to keep announcing this coming judgment, but because Israel has reached a point of no return, his warnings are going to have a paradoxical effect of hardening the people. But Isaiah is to trust God's plan. Israel is going to be chopped down like a tree and left like a stump in a field. And that stump will itself be scorched and burned. But after all of that burning, God says that this smoldering stump is a holy seed that will survive into the future. It's a small sign of hope, but who or what is that holy seed? The rest of this section offers an answer. 
Isaiah confronts Ahaz, a descendant of David and a king of Jerusalem, and he announces his downfall. God says that it's the great empire of Assyria who will first chop Israel down and devastate the land, but there's hope. Because of God's promise to David, he's going to send after this destruction a new king named Emmanuel, which means God with us. And Emmanuel's kingdom is going to set God's people free from violent, oppressive empires. And Isaiah describes this coming king as a small shoot of new growth that will emerge from the old stump of David's family. It's this king that's the holy seed from chapter 6. And the king is going to be empowered by God's spirit to rule over a new Jerusalem and bring justice for the poor, and all nations will look to this messianic king for guidance. His kingdom will transform all creation, bringing peace. Now, you finish chapters 1 through 12 with a pretty good understanding of Isaiah's message of judgment and hope. But when will this all happen? Isaiah saw another empire arising after Assyria, and that's Babylon, who would also attack Jerusalem and actually succeed in destroying it. And that brings us into the next sections of the book. So first, we have a large collection of poems that explore God's judgment and hope for the nations. We learn, first of all, of the fall of Babylon and Israel's neighbors. Isaiah could see that Assyria's world power would one day be replaced by the empire of Babylon, a nation even more destructive and arrogant. Babylon's kings claimed that they were higher than all other gods, and so God vows to bring Babylon down. And not only Babylon. Isaiah goes on to list Israel's neighbors, accusing them all of the same kind of pride and injustice, and he predicts their ultimate ruin. But remember, for Isaiah, God's judgment is never the final word for Israel or the nations. And that leads into the next section with a series of poems that tell a tale of two cities. There's the lofty city that has exalted itself above God and become corrupt and unjust. This city is an archetype of rebellious humanity, and it's described with language that's all borrowed from Isaiah's earlier descriptions of Jerusalem and Assyria and Babylon all put together. This city is destined for ruin, and one day is going to be replaced by the New Jerusalem, where God reigns as king over a redeemed humanity from all nations, and there's no more death or suffering. These chapters are the climax to this section, and it shows how Isaiah's message pointed far beyond his own day. It was a message for all who are waiting for God to bring his justice on violent, oppressive kingdoms and bring his kingdom of justice and peace and healing love. The following section returns the focus to the rise and fall of Jerusalem. And first we find a whole bunch of poems where Isaiah accuses Jerusalem's leaders for turning to Egypt for military protection against Assyria. He knows this will backfire. And Isaiah says that only trust in their God and repentance can save Israel now. Which gets illustrated by the following story about the rise of Hezekiah, king of Jerusalem. Just as Isaiah predicted, the Assyrian armies come and try to attack the city. And so Hezekiah humbles himself before God and he prays for divine deliverance and the city is miraculously saved overnight. But Hezekiah's rise is immediately followed by his fall. So he hosts a delegation from Babylon, and he tries to impress them by showing everything in Jerusalem's treasury and temple and palaces. It's clearly an effort to make another political alliance for protection. Isaiah hears about this, and he confronts Hezekiah for his foolishness. He predicts that this ally will one day betray him and return as an enemy to conquer Jerusalem. And we know from 2 Kings chapters 24 and 25 that Isaiah was right. Over a hundred years later, Babylon would turn on Jerusalem, come and destroy the city, its temple, and carry the Israelites away to exile in Babylon. And so all of Isaiah's warnings of divine judgment in chapters 1 to 39 lead up to this moment. He's shown to be a true prophet because it all came to pass like he said. But remember, the purpose of God's judgment was to purify Jerusalem and bring the holy seed and messianic kingdom over all nations. And it's that hope that gets explored in the next part of the book. But for now, that's what Isaiah chapters 1 to 39 are all about. Okay. There was our handy-dandy overview of the first 39 chapters, even though we're just going to look at the first 12 tonight, so nobody panic, okay? Um, and it, as I was watching this, I know we kind of jumped into that pretty quickly, but um, 
you know from your Old Testament history that the Lord has been prophesying to Israel that they will be judged for their idolatry. And he's been, ever since Genesis, he's going to tell them the plan. He's going to tell them what's going to happen. And he's been warning them through prophets like Isaiah that if you do not stop worshiping idols, if you do not repent, if you do not turn, you will be punished. And he will use nations to do that. And so that's kind of where we are in the Old Testament redemptive story. of This is kind of the overview of, again, the warning of it, when it happens, and then kind of what it points to in a larger sense. And so let's look at some of these themes in Isaiah, the first 12 chapters. So if you can find your way there, the first two books are real, or chapters are really just a good book summary. Again, that God will judge Israel, but a new Jerusalem will come. And I'll read just the first 15 verses of Isaiah Chapter 1, the vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, the son of Amoz, saw during the reigns of King Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah of Judah. Listen, heavens, and pay attention, earth. The Lord has spoken. I have raised children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master, master's feeding trough, but Israel does not know, and my people do not understand. O sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, brood of evildoers, depraved children. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned their backs on Him. Why do you want more beatings? Why do you want to keep on rebelling? The whole head is hurt and the whole heart is sick from the sole of the foot even to the head. No spot is uninjured. Wounds, welts, and festering sores, not cleansed, bandaged, or soothed with oil. Your land is desolate. Your cities burn down. Foreigners devour your fields right in front of you. A desolation like a place demolished by foreigners. Daughter Zion is abandoned like a shelter in a vineyard, like a shack in a cucumber field, which I have no idea what that means. Like a besieged city. If the Lord of armies had not left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom, we would resemble Gomorrah. And then he turns right around and calls them Sodom and Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are all your sacrifices to me, asks the Lord. I've had enough of your burnt offerings and rams and the fat of well-fed cattle. I have no desire for the blood of bulls, lambs, or male goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires this of you? This trampling of my, cor my courts. Stop bringing useless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. Your new moons and Sabbaths and the calling of solemn assemblies. I cannot stand iniquity within a festival. I hate your new moons and prescribed festivals. They've become a burden to me. I am tired of putting up with them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will refuse to look at you. Even if you offer countless prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Okay, then. Yeah, tell us how you really feel there, Isaiah. He starts out, he kind of summons the witnesses of the covenant in verse 2. He says, heavens and earth, right? You're the witnesses of the covenant that Israel made with God. You saw the deal. You know what they were supposed to do. They broke the covenant, right? But then in chapter 2, if we skip over, uh, well, before we get there, what, what has Israel done? And we kind of hit a, a couple things. What has Israel done that is so horrific. We said, number one, they broke the covenant, right? Their leaders are certainly guilty of spiritual pride, the Pharisees, but they've also, uh, they also are oppressing the poor. There's also a lot of injustice going on within their city walls. All of those things the Lord kind of details against Israel. Absolutely. We're going to get to that, making covenants with other nations, yeah, instead of trusting in God. One of the big themes of the book, absolutely. So in chapter 2, though, again, this is why some guys kind of feel, and I agree, that really the first two chapters are a good summary of the whole book. We've seen the judgment come down. Now in chapter 2, we can see some of the hope. The vision in chapter 2 that Isaiah, Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the last days... Here we go, ringing that eschatological bell again, ringing that, that end times bell, right? In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be established at the top of the mountain, 
and will be raised above the hills. All nations will stream to it, and many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us about his ways so that we will walk in his paths. For instruction will go out of Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will settle disputes among the nation and provide arbitration for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plows and their spears into pruning knives. Nation will not take up sword against nation, for they will never again train for war. And so we hear these echoes of hope right after chapter 1, right, in that, uh, in that severe condemnation, right? Um, chapter 5, if we skip a little bit, he talks about Israel as being a vineyard. He says that the vineyard that he used to lovingly care for, now he's going to remove his care. And that's a frequent comparison that we see in Scripture. Israel uh, being a vineyard, but also we see Jesus talking about a vineyard, right? We see that, and we see that a, I, I've never owned a vineyard before, but it requires constant care, right? It requires constant pruning and watering and gathering the fruit and all that sorts of stuff. It requires protection from predators and pests and disease and all of that stuff. And the Lord's saying, I'm removing my protection and my care from you, Israel. And he's pronouncing woe. If you went to, uh, through chapter 5 quickly, you could see that he pronounces woe. Woe to those who add house to house and join field to field, right? Those are, who are corrupt, who are trying to add to their wealth. In 5.11, woe to those who rise early in the morning in pursuit of beer, who linger into the evening inflamed by wine. This was something he had especially against Ephraim, against the northern kingdom, that they were way more concerned with their own comfort than they were actually leading the people and honoring God. Um, 18, woe to those who drag iniquity with cords of deceit and pull sin along with cart ropes. 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Kind of what we see in our society today, right? Who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, right? We're going to see some parallels, and this is where it gets tempting to say, this is America. This, he's talking about America. He's not talking about America. He's talking about Israel. We're not Israel. We were never in covenant with God the way that Israel was, but our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, right? There are definitely themes that we see in God's character that we can certainly apply to what's going on to our country today, but it's, it's not solid theology to equate us directly with Israel, so we've got to be careful about that as well. It goes on pronouncing more woes, and he says, uh, one commentator said, if they do not repent, they will be exiled from Yahweh's vineyard, just like Adam was exiled from the Garden of Eden. And so again, parallels to today, of course, um, God still takes sin very seriously. We have to remember that. We're going to see that uh, in the next chapter as well. But we also know that there is a coming hope. Right? We have a coming hope as well. That's why Isaiah is kind of like a good uh, overview of the whole Bible in many ways. Right? We see God's creation. We see God's covenant. We see the fall into sin. We see the redemption that will come. And then we'll see the future hope as well. All right. <clears throat> Let's get to chapter 6. The call of Isaiah. And so I'm going to read the first 13 verses and then we will back up and we'll take some of this apart. Isaiah 6 in verse 1 says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a lofty and high throne, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him, and they each had six wings. With two they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. The foundations of the doorway shook at the sound of their voices, and the temple was filled with smoke. And then I said, woe is me. So now we have Isaiah declaring woe on himself. Woe is me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips. 
than because my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of armies. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, and in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, now this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is removed and your sin is atoned for. And then I heard the voice of the Lord asking, who should I send and who will go for us? And I said, here I am, send me. And he replied, go, say to the people, keep listening, but do not understand. Keep looking, but do not perceive. Make the minds of these people dull, deafen their ears and blind their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their, e- their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their minds and turn back and be healed. And then I said, until when, Lord? And he replied, until cities lie in ruins without inhabitants, houses are without people, the land is ruined and desolate, and the Lord drives the people far away, leaving a great emptiness in the land. Though a tenth will remain in the land, it will be burned again, like the terebinth or the oak that leaves a stump when felled. The holy seed is the stump. So much in here in this first little bit of it. The first thing we see is the holiness of God. And we see that in verse 3. Holy, holy, holy. I always think of the late, great R.C. Sproul when I hear, when I hear him say that and the holiness of God and the, the tone of voice that only he could say it. There's no other attribute that God that is mentioned in Scripture three times. He's not mercy, 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 or love, 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 or grace, 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 but he is holy, holy, holy in that. And the holiness of God, we see that the, the, the whole place is shaking when Isaiah is in there. So we see the holiness of God. But in verse 5, we see the sinfulness of man. Isaiah, he says, woe is me for I'm ruined. I'm a sinful man in the palace of the most holy God. I am ruined. It reminds me of, of a Peter, the apostle, when Jesus was in the boat with him at first, and Jesus performs a miracle of getting the, the giant catch of fish, right? What does Peter do? He wants to jump off the boat. He's like, get away from me. I am, I am a sinful man. I, I am a sinful man, and you are obviously God in the flesh. So it's kind of the, the terror of realizing our own sin especially when we're in the presence of holiness. But then right away, it's the redemptive plan of God. What does God do? He, you saw it in the movie, that, that one seraphim. And by the way, remember the seraphim, it says they have six wings. With two, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew, right? So four of those six wings are self-protection because they can't look at God, nor do they want their feet burned or any skin or whatever showing in the holiness of God. One of these... Six-winged creatures comes out with a tongue from the altar and then touches Isaiah's lips. And he says, you are purified. A symbol of forgiveness and redemption in God's redemptive plan. And then he says, well, now that you've had this encounter, now that you've been purified, now that you understand my holiness, I have a mission for you, Isaiah. He says, who will go? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. Has he given him the mission yet? <laughs> Not given him the mission yet, but Isaiah, in his enthusiasm, enthusiasm, says, here I am, send me. And we had just went over this in Matthew 13, right, where Jesus quotes this directly. Again, Jesus saying, this is Isaiah who said this, or Matthew saying that. He says, go, here's your mission. Go preach, but they're not going to listen. Go tell them what they need to do, but they're going to ignore you. And actually what we see is that God's word is the agent that either hardens their hearts or softens their hearts. And we saw that very clearly in Isaiah, and we're going to see that again this week in Matthew. We've seen it the last couple weeks. That's the mission, the mission of the gospel. That's what God uses to either draw people to himself or to continue to harden their hearts so that they continue to reject him. Um, Let's see if there's something else I wanted to see. Any other observations about that? Feel free to jump in if you have any observations or thoughts or disparaging remarks or questions or things resonating in your mind about that. Yeah. 
Uh, it's, yeah, it's definitely prophecy. Uh, I think it's more of a summary. Yeah, I think it's really kind of, if, if we're taking this example, right, of the covenant, right, Isaiah is going to be more of the covenant prosecutor for God. And so it's basically God laying out his case against Israel and saying, this is the deal. We had a covenant. You broke it. I'm calling heaven and earth back in the courtroom as witnesses. Here's what you did. Here's what I said was going to happen, and it's going to happen. Here's, you know, the, all the woes that we declare on you uh, for it. Uh, here are the judgments that are going to fall with Israel's leaders and so on and so forth. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely prophecy, but I would classify it as summary of really what's coming in the whole book. All right. So let's look at our first kind of victim here, uh, King Ahaz. So 7 through 12, uh, it has been called the book of Emmanuel. And we meet in chapter 7, King Ahaz of Judah. And if we look at chapter 7, it says this, This took place during the reign of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah. Aram's king Rezin and Israel's king Pekah, son of Ramalia, went to fight against Jerusalem, but they were not able to conquer it. When it became known to the house of David that Aram had occupied Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the hearts of his people trembled like trees of a forest shaking in the wind. And so there's all kinds of historic background that's happening here that I'm not going to fall into a wormhole about, but it's actually chronicled in uh, the book of First and Second Kings and all of that that was alluded to, this actual history that's happening here of nations. And it's actually proven time and time again in extra-biblical history uh, through um, historical writings of what happened with these nations that correspond directly with what Isaiah is saying here. So the background, in short, is that Judah, right? So Judah's the southern kingdom. Remember the kingdom split, right? It's going to happen before exile. Judah's the southern kingdom. Israel, or Ephraim, is the northern kingdom, right? And the background is that Judah would not join an alliance with Israel and Syria against, to make it even more confusing, Assyria, right? And so what happens is Israel and Syria are ticked at Judah for not joining this secret alliance, and they decide to join forces and come against Judah. And here we have Ahaz shaking in his boots, because this is what's happening in verse 2. That's what it says. So Ahaz freaks out, and God calls on him, say, stop freaking out, trust me. Don't do anything stupid, just trust me. Listen, and then he gives a couple reasons why he can be trusted. First and foremost, this isn't going to happen. <laughs> Don't worry about it, okay? And he says it clear in verse 7. This is what the Lord God says. It will not happen. It will not occur. And he goes on to say the chief of Aram is Damascus, right? Chief city in Damascus is Revan. E Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. He's like, there's stuff at work here that is not going to happen. Then in verse 9, at the end, very, very powerful statement that God makes. This is a great verse for us to um, pull out. There's so many nuggets in Isaiah that we can pull out and, and memorize and, and cause to be an encouragement to us. He challenges Ahaz. He says, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. He says, he says, Ahaz, this is the deal. This is the moment. You've got to trust me on this. And if you don't stand firm in your faith, you are not going to stand firm at all. A huge challenge. So Ahaz is freaking out. God says, stop freaking out. Trust me. First of all, it's not going to happen. Second of all, I'm going to bring signs of hope in this. And if we read in 7, I think we're going to find, uh, starting at verse 10, we're going to find some familiar territory in here. The Lord spoke again to Ahaz. Ask for a sign from the Lord your God. It can be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz says, no, thank you. I will not ask. I will not test the Lord. Isaiah said, listen, look, the house of David, is it not enough for you to try the patience of men? Will you also try the patience of my God? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. 
See, the virgin will conceive, she will have a son, and you will name him Emmanuel. And by the time he learns to reject what is bad and choose what is good, he will be eating curds and honey. Familiar territory that we're in. And it's familiar territory because Matthew highlights it as a prophecy of the coming of Jesus, right? The virgin will give birth to a child and you will call his name Emmanuel. What's Emmanuel mean again? I always forget that. God with us, right? So we see that. Ahaz freaks out. Isaiah, speaking for God, says, stop freaking out. There's going to be a sign. In the, th- this is a classic near fulfillment and far fulfillment of this, right? There are some guys that say, no, there actually is no fulfillment in Jesus. This is just for Ahaz. I'm like, okay, but Matthew says it, so I think it's just a classic near fulfillment and far fulfillment. The near fulfillment is quite simple because it says, hey, guess what? It's not going to happen. You're not going to be destroyed. As a matter of fact, you're going to have a kid. So nobody's going to die here. <laughs> Plan on, you know, fix up the nursery because you're going to have another kid and it's going to happen. And you are going to have him and his name is going to be Emmanuel or, or whoever. It's actually not actually his. It's, it's Ahaz's kid, not Isaiah's kid. His, his kid comes later, right? So it's definitely a near fulfillment in that. But what happens, though, is that Ahaz rejects this. Ahaz, we see it right in verse 11 or verse 12. Isaiah says, come on, give, this is okay. Stop freaking out. Ask the Lord for a sign. Ahaz says no. He rejects the Lord's sign. Always a bad idea to say no to the Lord. He says, no, I don't want a sign. I'm not gonna, I'm, and then he tries to cover it over in religious language. Like, maybe I'll pray about it. He's like, no, I, I don't want to test the Lord. Isaiah's like, look, this is, this is me. I'm the prophet speaking for the Lord here. Ask for a sign, and he still refuses to do it. He refuses to do it because it was never in his heart to trust the Lord in the first place. And Ahaz actually runs. Remember, we had that alliance with Israel and Syria, right? And they wanted Judah to join them so they can go against Assyria. So what does Ahaz do? Ahaz goes the end around. He goes to Assyria himself and says, these guys are picking on me. They're going to they're gonna come into my territory and burn everything to the ground. And they wanted me to come against you, but I wasn't going to do that. So let's be friends and go get them for me. I don't know if he actually said that. I don't know if you can. You can whine in Hebrew. I've heard some, some whining. That's essentially a loose translation of what he said in Hebrew, which actually kind of works because he goes to Assyria and says, this is what's happening go get them, beat them up. So Assyria does, but that's what leads to the exile of the northern kingdom because Assyria in 722 is going to sweep into the, just like Ahaz wanted, right? He's going to sweep into the northern kingdom and he's going to drag the northern kingdom off to exile. Remember the exile happened in two parts, right? Because there was northern kingdom and southern kingdom. Northern was first. So that's how that happens. Right here is Ahaz hires them essentially to go do it, and they do it. Assyria then promptly exiles Israel, the northern kingdom. Not a good thing. So if there was a lesson throughout the book, and especially in the book of Emmanuel, it is this. Trust God, not blank, not whatever, right? Is this not repeated today? Like in everything that we face, when we have those freak out moments in and of ourselves, right? And we have those moments where we're like, okay, I could trust in God, I could abide in God, or I could try and figure out a way out of this myself. Or I could try to figure out how to sin so that I'm comforted in this, or I can figure out how this is going to work myself. And the lesson is don't be like Ahaz. Because Ahaz is the example of someone who didn't trust God. Hezekiah is going to be the example of someone who did trust God, sort of, footnote at the end, sort of, right? So Ahaz is the guy who does not trust God. We are called to trust God and not take matters into our own hands to try and cut God out of it and fix it ourselves. Chapter 8 gets into more specific prophecy of the coming Assyrian invasion. 
8 and 12 and 13. Now remember, this is what God is using to judge Israel. But if you're sitting there in Israel, you're also now kind of freaking out because the Assyrian army is going to be knocking at your door shortly, right? And so they're going to panic. But God is sovereign over all this because this is what God is using. He's using the nation of Assyria to judge Israel. Look at chapter 8, verse 12 and 13. Are these words for today or not? Do not call everything a conspiracy that these people say is a conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be terrified. You are to regard only the Lord of armies as holies. Only he should be feared and only he should be held in awe. I mean, that's just right out of today's headlines, right? We can have conspiracy theories and conversations and, you know, this is what the world is coming to and all of that and people being alarmists and things like that. But think about being in Israel. Think about being that, yeah, we did this. The Lord said it was coming and it's happening. Ahaz just screwed up down to the south. And now in the north, we're the ones who are going to pay the price for it. But Isaiah says, guess what, guys? This, <laughs> this isn't like something that's happening outside the Lord's sovereign control. This is what's happening for your judgment. And that's what's been told to you. God is always at work but again, chapter 9 goes back to a plan of redemption. More familiar territory. Let me read the first uh, seven verses for us. He says, Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future he will bring honor by the way of the sea to the land east of the Jordan and to Galilee and to the nations. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light that has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing spoils. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and on the rod of their shoulders the staff of their oppressor as you did on the day of Midian. For every trampling boot of battle and the bloody garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child will be born for us. A son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Eternal Father, the Prince of Peace. His dominion will be vast, and his prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom and establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. We've got like three more weeks, four more weeks till Advent's upon us, right? And we'll be, sorry if I just freaked everybody out with that. Christmas shopping, up! We're not shopping. No, no Christmas shopping this year. But this is one of the most famous prophecies of the Messiah. And it comes to the nation of Israel when God's judgment through Assyria is knocking at their door, ready to kick it in and, and take everybody into exile. And God promises them, this will still not be the end. There still will be redemption. And then he promises through his plan of redemption, again, really a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment, especially of someone who will come. This is a messianic prophecy, if there ever was one. The one who will be sitting on David's throne forever. So again, we see judgment then alternating with hope, with God's sovereignty, his plan of redemption. Chapter 10, Assyria doesn't get off the hook because God is just, as Pastor Josh told us on Sunday, even though they're the ones that they are, they're God's acts, he's going to call them in a minute, for cutting down the tree of Israel, they're responsible for that. And they're going to have to answer for their sin of destroying God's nation and murdering his people and taking them into exile. They will be judged. They're going to have to be judged. And then we see this kind of, uh, look, in, look in 1020. This is kind of what the end result should be. On that day, right, after the dust has settled and Assyria has been judged on the last day, on that day the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no longer depend on the one who struck them but they will faithfully depend on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. Huge theme in the book of Isaiah, 
depend on the Lord, not other things, not Israel. And he said, not, not Assyria in this case. And he says, you'll realize that, you'll understand it, you'll get that after all the dust settles. And then you will depend on me like you should have in the beginning. Some cool um, little things to end uh, our little summary here. In 10.33, Look, the Lord God of armies will chop off the branches with terrifying power. The tall trees will be cut down and the high trees will be felled. Right? And we saw earlier that it's the stump in 6 at the end of chapter 6. The holy seed uh, that leaves a stump. Uh, the oak falls down. The terebinth leaves a stump when felled. The holy seed is the stump. So Israel is the stump. It's been cut down. That's the judgment. They're the stump. Assyria is the axe. Assyria is what God is using as his instrument, which is really kind of wild when you think about it, it was flip-flopped in the Canaanite narratives, right? Because God used Israel to judge Assyria, or to judge the Canaanites, right? And now it's reversed, right? God is using Assyria to judge Israel. Imagine that. I mean, something that just blows our minds, that God using nations to judge other nations as his, as his uh, kind of pawns, so to speak, in chess. So Assyria is the axe. And then we have this, what was graphically pictured in the video, we have this shoot or this root that is then coming up from Israel, which has been cut down, which is the Messiah. Look at um, in 11, starting in verse 1. Then a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse, right, the tribe of Judah. A branch from its roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight will be in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes. He will not execute justice by what he hears with his ears, but he will judge the poor righteously and execute justice for the oppressed of the land. He will strike the land with a scepter from his mouth. Think about that, guys. Think about what we're looking at right now, or what we have even looked at in Matthew. I mean, they, this passage is like ringing in the ears of the people that see Jesus walking through Galilee doing these things, right? When he was baptized in the Jordan River, what descended upon him? Right? The Holy Spirit in the form of a dove. If you're thinking, if you're Jewish, you're thinking of Isaiah 11, verse 2. You're thinking about the Holy Spirit coming down. You're, you're, when he was in the synagogue in, in Luke 4, which we're going to look at this week, sort of, he's saying the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. People are ringing in their ears, is this Messiah-like person who's going to have the Spirit of the Lord upon him. Right? When, he's, when he's doing justice for the marginalized and the poor, they're thinking about this. And then look at, the end of uh, verse 4, he will strike the land with a scepter where from his mouth. So Jesus going, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, preaching the truth, and either people are rejecting it and coming against him, or they are believing it and they are submitting to him as the Messiah. It is so cool to look at all those parallels. And then there's one more, as you would think, it's picked up several times in the Old Testament, this motive of a stump or a shoot or a root. In Romans 15, 12, where Paul is going on and on and on, and he says uh, in fifteen twelve, and again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will appear, the one to, who rises to rule the Gentiles now the Gentiles will hope in him. And there's this doxology now. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So as he's writing to these people in Rome, talking about the gospel, he's just been going on and on and on about the gospel of Jesus Christ for this whole time, he brings it back to Isaiah. And he says, remember the root, remember the shoot of Jesse, remember that's going to happen. Yeah, that's him. That's Jesus. That's what we're talking about here. Be encouraged in that hope. Think about it if you're Jewish too. You're, you're kind of displaced 
right, at that time. We know what's coming in many ways. And then we have the Christians coming. We have all of that. And, and Paul saying, look, this is part of the plan. Here's the redemption. Jesus is the fulfillment of it. Paul kind of goes into that little, little benediction of praise. But then in Isaiah, he closes chapter 12 with a song of praise, which all this, of course, just wells up in just the glory of God and what he's done in his plan. So, yeah. Questions, comments, disparaging remarks. Twelve chapters of Isaiah's awesomeness. It does pick up a lot of speed after that. Don't let your hearts be discouraged or dismayed. There's a lot of things. The next big section is a whole lot of judgments against other nations and things, and that will continue on. Um, all right. Any other thoughts? Okie dokie, then. We'll turn you back to our, our midweek slide. Wow, the remote control just it held well today. Good job, iPhone. All right, let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for this time that we could come together and, and look at Isaiah and just be kind of overwhelmed with your plan, your justice, how you have spoken this, that, uh, that Israel would be judged for their rejection of you, for their spiritual adultery, for the sins that they have committed and the leaders have committed. And Lord, in your sovereignty, how you use nations, millions of people and armies on the world stage to bring that about in your judgment. So Father, help us to remember as Isaiah 6, your holiness, um, our sinfulness, but help us also to remember the redemption that you give us. And specifically, of course, as we've bumped into a couple times tonight in this passage, the redemption that comes through the Messiah, the redemption that comes through Jesus the root, the shoot that is coming up from the stump of Israel, Lord. We're so thankful that you don't give up on us, that you continue to redeem and continue to open our eyes to the truth of the gospel. And Father, we know that one day, uh, once again, you will provide a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem, where we will live with you forever. Make us strong until then. Um, sanctify us, Lord, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.